One of the facets of Scripture I like best is the reality of it. And what I, I mean by that, in this case, is that Scripture doesn't hide the flaws and the faults of those that, uh, I guess you'd say, star in it. Oh, that's not the right wording. I mean, think about the different people that God chose to serve Him throughout Scripture. They were ordinary, everyday people. They were former slaves and shepherds, family men, young girls who had been kidnapped by the king, sons of prostitutes and people driven by fear. Some had short tempers. They often lacked spiritual understanding. Very often they lacked humility. Often they lacked faith. They made bad decisions. Uh, They often missed the point of what God was trying to do in them and through them and for them. They said the wrong things and they did the wrong things. They reacted the wrong ways. I mean, they were just generally regular, ordinary people that did the same sorts of things that you and I might do. They were all very common people. They came from a variety of backgrounds. They had a variety of education levels. But they were reunited by one main truth. God called them and they answered yes. Now despite that they were ordinary flawed people who failed, God worked through them to accomplish His will in the world. Right, And those truths bring us both, I think, a challenge and a comfort to us. Right, The, the comfort of the hope comes because that means that if God can work through those kind of people to make a difference in the world, then God can work through you and I to make a difference in the world. I find it extremely hopeful to know that God works through ordinary people to accomplish His will in the world because I am aware of the fact I am very, very ordinary. But there's also a challenge in that truth uh, that because if God called these ordinary people to serve Him, then He's going to call ordinary people like us to serve Him today. right? The fact that God called and worked through ordinary flawed people throughout Scripture, it means that you and I, we can't hide behind, well, I'm too ordinary or I'm too flawed to serve God and to do the things that God would have me to do. What God did in Scripture, that is, work through ordinary, everyday, flawed people, He intends to do through all of us, In this room tonight. I mean that is God's goal. And God's desire. You and I. We are all called to serve God. And serving God really is one of the greatest privileges. That we have as Christians. It gives life a sense of meaning and purpose. A life spent not serving God. Would be a meaningless purposeless existence. All of us as believers. Are called to serve God. We're not all called to do the same things. But we're all called to do something. But knowing this, we should take whatever steps are necessary to prepare ourselves for service so that we can be of the most use possible to our God. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1. That's page 628 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. This was a part of my... Bible reading today, my daily reading today. It says, Moreover, he, God, said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, Go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. 
Surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not. They have not listened to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, your forehead against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears. And go get, the, go get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them. Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from His place. I also heard the noise and the wings of living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of wheels beside them, and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv, who dwelt at the river Chaber, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them for seven days. The title of the message tonight is Preparing for Service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for all you've given and done. Thank you for the opportunity that we have tonight to gather to study your word. Lord, to be a people that are called by you to go and to serve you in some way. Help us tonight to understand the call that you have placed upon our lives. Help us, God, to embrace it, to say yes to you, and to take whatever steps are necessary to prepare ourselves so that we can be used by you to accomplish your will in Gaiman and beyond. Father, we love you. We ask you to have your way in our lives. Have your way in this service. Fill me with your spirit tonight. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Don't let me be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. We love you, Father. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet during the Jewish captivity in Babylon. He was raised to be a priest and carried off in the first captivity around 497 B.C., along with the majority of the Jews. Now, about the first 33 chapters of the book of Ezekiel is pretty much about the judgment, the further judgment, the complete judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem that will end in it being destroyed. Ezekiel, like Jeremiah before him, was not a terribly popular fellow with the community because of the message that he brought. Now, the book of Ezekiel starts off with Ezekiel having what I I would call a very strange vision. But this vision is important. It is God's call to Ezekiel to be the prophet to the nation, particularly to those who are in captivity at this time. Ezekiel's vision, it goes on throughout chapter 3 where we are tonight. Uh, Just the the first part of chapter 3, because we're going to be in that last part that I read, but in verses 1 through 3, God gives Ezekiel a scroll and tells him to eat it, to take that message to the people of Israel. In verse 4 through 7, God gives Ezekiel information about the people that he's to take the message to. One, these are your people, right? You're not going to the Babylonians or to anybody else. You are going to your own people. However... They're not going to hear you. They're not going to listen to what you have to say. They haven't listened to me in all of these years, so they're not going to listen to you, but you're still to go to them anyway. In one of the other chapters before this, one of the things that God says is, when you go to them and take my word, they're not going to listen, but what they're going to know is that a prophet has been among them. And that was really the point. right? So that they would know that God was still at work. They would know that God was still calling them. Right? And this is Ezekiel's Call. They are stubborn. They are hard-hearted. They're not going to listen. Now, all in all, that's not the most encouraging call to the ministry someone could ever receive. But that is Ezekiel's 
call. Now, Ezekiel's call is unique. You and I are not likely to be sitting by a river someday and have a vision of four flying beasts with wheels and wings and four faces. And God saying, this is it, I'm calling you to be a prophet to the nations. But that doesn't mean that God is not calling us to be ministers, to calling us to serve Him in one way or another. Ezekiel's calling is unique, but the idea of being called by God is not. Right? And so, our main idea for tonight, the thing to know, is that all believers in Jesus are called to serve Jesus. But right? if you and I tonight, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, He is our Savior and our Lord, then we are in some way called. Again, we're not all called the same way. We're not all called to the same things. But we are called to serve. Like Ezekiel, our calling is not always going to be easy. And God builds that up to Ezekiel in verses 5, 6, and 7 by telling them how they're not going to respond, the hardness of their hearts, the rebellious of their nature. And that's why his wording in verses 8 through 15, they were so critical to Ezekiel. Yes, the ministry I'm calling you to is hard. Yes, the people are rebellious and stubborn. But here's what I want from you so that you can still minister to me in that time into that place. Right? Like Ezekiel, these words are important to us in times when ministry and service to Jesus gets difficult. These are things that really, in a lot of ways, Ezekiel is going to have to do these things in advance. He's not going to go back and start prophesying and then do these along the way. These are things that he must settle in his heart, in his mind, in his life in advance to serve the Lord. In a similar way, the things that we're going to talk about tonight, these are things that, that we must, these are steps that we must take to prepare ourselves in advance to determine this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. Right now, and then we can begin to move out and to serve the Lord in the way that He, whatever way that He calls us to. So, four steps. The first one is determined to serve Jesus no matter what. Now, the wording of verse 8 and 9 kind of made me chuckle today. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. I mean, what a kind of a word picture. Uh, I chuckled and I thought, next time someone tries to intimidate you, yeah, just pull up your hair and show them your forehead and say, does that look like the forehead of someone that's afraid of you? No. Right? I mean, because that's kind of the picture, the hard, hard, hard. And the picture, what he's saying is, they're going to look at you hard as you stand up and preach and say, thus says the Lord. They're going to look back at you and they're going to look at you with mean eyes. And they're going to be making faces at you. And as they do... Your face needs to be as hard as their face. Don't let their faces and what they look at you like, don't let that intimidate you. No matter what they say, no matter how ugly they look at you, no matter what kinds of things they say about you, you determine. You're going to say what I want you to say. You're going to do what I want you to do. I mean, that's what God's telling you. As I send you out here to these hard-hearted, rebellious, stubborn people, you go be just as stubborn as they are in doing my will. No matter how they respond, no matter what they say, you determine right now, Ezekiel, that you aren't backing down, you aren't letting up, 
And you are not going to stop saying what I give you to say. If you and I, if we determine that we're going to serve Jesus, there are going to be times where we face opposition. Uh, There are going to be times where people talk about us. There are going to be times where people give us dirty looks. There will be times where people treat you or your family ugly because you're serving Jesus. And if we're not ready for this, in those times we'll quit. And if we're going to serve Jesus and be faithful to the end, then we have to determine we're going to serve Jesus no matter what. Because everybody isn't always going to appreciate our ministry and our service to Christ. Now probably no one better epitomizes this mindset than the Apostle Paul. And I want us to look at one of my favorite examples of this. Hold your finger here because of course we're coming back. But flip over to Acts chapter 20. Verse 18 is where we're starting. That should be page 848 if you have a pew Bible. Acts 20 and 21 are kind of what we're going to look at. Just a few verses in each one. Paul is heading to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost there. To get there on time, it forces him to be constantly moving forward and not really to stop. But he also, he wants to meet with the elders of the church at Ephesus. So he calls to them or he sends a word to them to meet him at a particular place. Now, if you know the story of Paul's life from the book of Acts, you know that once he arrives in Jerusalem, it's going to go bad. I mean, it just, it's been rough before, but this is where things really start to go bad. But look at what we find here. So when they came, the, the Ephesian elders, he said to them, You know, from the first day I came to Asia, what manner I've always lived among you, serving the Lord in all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem, knowing not knowing the things which will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, chains and tribulation await me. Right, so we know, looking at the story, things go bad for Paul once he arrives there. But Paul knows that as well. Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, to be there at this time, but the Spirit has also told Paul, once you get there, it's going to go bad. But what's Paul's response to this message from the Holy Spirit? Verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor, nor, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul basically says it doesn't matter. I know it's going to be hard once I get there. I know it's going to be chains and imprisonment. I don't know anything beyond that, but that doesn't, that doesn't matter. I'm just going to go finish the race. Do God has me. I'm going to serve Jesus no matter what. Now look down at chapter 21. Now it came to pass when he had departed from them and set sail. Running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship, we went over to Phoenicia, and we went aboard and set sail. We had, sight, we had, we had sighted Cyprus when we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed in Tyre. And from there the ship was to unload our cargo. Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul is on a ship heading that way. They stop. They find some. And we don't even know who these disciples were. It doesn't appear that there's necessarily people that Paul knew. 
They were just people who followed, were followers of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has told them what's going to happen to Paul. And they began to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem because bad things are going to happen to you when you get there. But now look down at verse 8. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So again, Paul is waiting here. He's at Philip's house, and a prophet Agabus comes, takes Paul's belt, and again tells him through the Holy Spirit, you are going to be bound. You are going to be turned over to the Gentiles. Bad things await him. Right now, the people, his friends, look what they do in verse 12. We heard these things. Both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up. Paul, don't go. The Holy Spirit is telling you what's coming. Chains, imprisonment, hardship, trials. Don't go. And then Paul says, what do you mean weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also die at Jerusalem for the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he would not be persuaded, we see, saying, the will of the Lord be done. And they only gave up pleading for Paul not to go when, it was determined, when they could see he was stubborn. He had a hard face. He was going no matter what. Go ahead and turn back to Ezekiel. The attitude that Paul demonstrated there, it is the attitude that God was calling on Ezekiel to have in our, in our text. And this is the same attitude that you and I are to have in our lives. We aren't likely to face change and tribulations that Paul was going to face. But we're not likely to face the kind of things that Ezekiel was going to face. But that doesn't mean that we won't face opposition. We will. Right? We're going to face all kinds of opposition in all kinds of ways. We'll face opposition from the world. I don't mean the world. We know the world at large. They don't mind what we're doing here tonight. The world at large does not mind that we gather in a church, that we sing praise to Jesus and we study the Bible. They don't mind if we do this every night of the week for the rest of our lives. What they mind is when we take what we do in here and it begins to affect how we act out there. When we begin to go out of these walls and live in a particular way and say certain things and, and try to reach others for Jesus, at that point the world cares. A private Christianity does not bother the world, but a Christianity that is devoted and serves Christ bothers them immensely. And so we'll have to accept that there are going to be some people in the world who aren't going to like it. Right? The devil. The devil largely doesn't mind if we gather in a church and we sing praise to Jesus and we study the Bible. But he's going to mind if we go out and try to reach out to others for the name of Jesus Christ. He's going to mind if we go out and try to make a mark or influence others for the sake of Jesus Christ out there. And so we're going to face what Ephesians 6 talks about, principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly places. We're going to face spiritual battles as we go. But the greatest 
battles we'll face will even be from probably our, our own sinful nature. Right? Because in a lot of times what we do is we build up how big those other battles are going to be. We build up on our mind this how great the battle of the world is going to be and we let fear keep us from serving. Or, or we let just the, the serving in this capacity, in this way, it's not always convenient. It's not always comfortable. So we let selfishness keep us from it because it'll make us uncomfortable to do it. And that's a battle that we'll have to face. I mean, we're always going to have to deal with these sorts of things. And what we have to determine in advance is we are going to do what Jesus would have us to do no matter what. But we're going to serve Jesus no matter what anyone says. But no matter if they bring up our past. No matter if they point out what they call our hypocrisy. No matter if they say that we are, they compare us to the Westboro Baptist Church. No matter what they say. We have to determine we're going to serve Jesus no matter what. We have to serve Jesus no matter what anyone does. Whether they like it and they're our friends, whether they don't like it and they stop being our friends. We have to serve Jesus no matter what anyone does. If they mock us, if they act hateful toward us, we still have to serve Jesus. Determine we're going to. We have to determine we're going to serve Jesus no matter what anyone thinks. I mean, there are always going to be people who say, well, maybe you should calm down a little bit. Maybe you shouldn't take it so seriously. Maybe you shouldn't be so fanatical. Who cares what they think? We must determine we're going to serve Jesus no matter what anyone thinks about our service to Jesus. All believers are called to serve Jesus. But we can only serve Him when we are determined to serve Him no matter what. Because it's not always going to be convenient. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be free of opposition. So determined to serve Jesus no matter what. Secondly, make sure Scripture is impacting me personally. Now look at verse 10. Moreover, He said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. Now this, of course, goes with the idea of verses 1 and 2 about opening his mouth and eating the scroll, which is the words of God. Right Before Ezekiel can take God's message to others, he's got to ensure that it's impacting his life first. Right? He has to make sure that it's sinking deep into his heart where it will bring forth the kind of fruit necessary for him to be able to serve the Lord. Right? We must have a time where we study God's Word for ourselves. One of the things I learned early on as a pastor was that if I do not have a time of devotional study, it hinders everything. Right? Because it's easy, as a pastor, a lot of what I do is study the Bible anyway. I study to prepare to preach two, two sermons a week, teach a Sunday school lesson. I mean, that's a lot of time just studying the Bible on its own. It's easy enough for a pastor to say, well, that's, that's my time in the world. Everything I do is studying to share, to do, not for me, not just for my own personal strength and relationship with Christ, to share with others. What I found in my life is that if the only time I study the Bible is in preparation to teach others, I'm, I'm spiritually malnourished in my own life. I mean, that's not to say that when I study, I don't, to teach, I don't take it in myself. I do. But if I'm not studying to, to feed myself spiritually, 
I'm not able to effectively minister to others. I mean, if we are going to serve Jesus and serve others, we must, we must be a people of the book. We just, we just have to be. There is no other way to be spiritually strong except for personal time in the Word. And I thought about this, and I just want to give you some quick tips on how to study Scripture when you study it for yourself to, so to make sure that it's impacting you. But first, study with application in mind. I really do believe that consistent time in the Word is the number one key to growth in Christ-likeness. However, there's more to it than just reading for knowledge. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is necessary. But knowledge is not enough. The Pharisees studied Scripture, Jesus says in verse 39 and 40. They knew the Scriptures. They memorized large portions of Scriptures. But Jesus said their failing wasn't that they didn't know it, but that Scripture pointed to Him and they weren't following it. Right? They weren't doing what they knew. That's why James wrote that we're to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Right? We, we must study, not with just an idea to know more, but what does this mean to me? How do I need to change my life in response to what I'm reading and what I'm studying? Right? It, it, we must not only read Scripture, but we must do what it says. And a part of what that means is that we have to attempt, at the very least, to live what we preach. We're all going to fall short of living it completely. And that's fine. That, that's, that's life. We are the fallen, imperfect people just like everybody else but Jesus was in Scripture. The point isn't live it perfectly and never make any mistakes and then you can preach or then you can share the Word. The point is try. And when you fail, acknowledge it. Confess it. Turn from it. If we... We want to be able to influence the world for Christ. They have to see that what we claim means something to us. And the only way they're going to see that it means something to us is if we are living what we're preaching, what we're sharing. I read something this afternoon, and I added it to my sermon because it was after I was finished, from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said, where one man reads the Bible, a hundred read you and me. The reality is, you and I, we're the only Bible some people are ever going to read. What are people reading when they watch our lives? So study with application in mind. Secondly, focus on Scripture as the Word of God. I mean, one of the keys to being sure that we get the most out of the Bible is to make sure we are very aware that this is the very Word of God. We call it the Word of God. But it's easy to forget that's really what it is. It's not Paul's opinions or Ezekiel's opinions or Peter's opinions. These are God's words to us through Paul, through Ezekiel, through Peter. In this book, we are holding the very words of God Himself. I mean, there's a weight, there's an authority that comes when we understand that these are the words of of God. And as we get come to the Bible and we begin to say this is God speaking directly to me. 
Well, then there's authority, particularly to the application. Right? Because if this is just somebody's opinion, well, that's not authoritative. My opinion, John MacArthur's opinion, David Jeremiah's opinion, those are great. But they're not God. But if God's speaking, that's not an opinion, that's authority, that's, that's do, that's go, that's change. So one of the ways to get the most out of it is when we come to this to remind ourselves this is God speaking. To reject this is to reject God. To ignore this is to ignore God. We have to find our way, find ways to remind ourselves that what we're reading, that it is actually God's word to us. Also, look for patterns or repetitions. That's something I, I like to do. Personally. Now, just different ways, like John 15. Jesus says over and over again, abide in me and bear fruit. Those are, you look at that and you think, well, he's emphasizing something here. Or later in Ezekiel, God is going to say, I'm going to do something so that they will know that I am the Lord. And over and over and over again, you find in certain chapters in Ezekiel that they will know that I am the Lord. Right? That's a, that's a pattern. It's a repetition. God is showing, hey, some of the reasons He does stuff is so that they will know, we will know, that He is the Lord. One of the Psalms that I was reading it just the other day, and I can't remember off the top of my head what, which, what number it is, but it says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The word of the Lord is over this. The voice of the Lord is that. And over and over and over again reminding us the power of God's words. But look for those kind of patterns because all of those things are significant. Anytime there's that level of repetition, God is emphasizing something for us. Look for patterns or repetitions. Keep a study journal. Keeping a study journal has been one of the best things I have ever done in my own private devotions. Uh, more sermons, more sermon series have come out of my own private study that I wrote in a journal first than, than anything else I've ever done. The vast majority of anything we do, any study we do, it comes from my private journals. Right? I record them, and then at some point something clicks, and I go back and I pull notes out of them, and I build sermons and series out of them. Uh, but even not just for that, for my own personal growth, just to... To write these thoughts down, to write down what Scripture was saying to me, how it speaks to me at this moment in my life. A prayer based off of this. Praise. Hey God, I, I have seen. I've seen you do this. Thank you for this. Um, for me, it helps clarify what I'm thinking about. It helps clarify what I'm reading, what I'm studying. Rick Warren says that thoughts disentangle themselves as they flow through your fingers. And that has been very true for me. Now, if you've never kept a journal but wanted to, I have a handout that I'll give you if you want it. Um, and it's called a HEAR journal. HEAR is an acronym. Highlight, explain, apply, and respond. And it's kind of, this is what I taught to the teens on how to do Bible study. And if you want one, you can have it. If It's not the format I use because I had already started my journals before I came across this. But if I was just starting out and trying to do a Bible journal, I would love this. This is exactly the way I would, I would like to do it. So if you want one, they're up here. Uh, but, again, journaling, the Bible doesn't say keep a journal. Uh, this is just, it's been beneficial for me, 
It's been beneficial for people down through the ages. It could be beneficial for you as well. And then finally, pray before you study. Pray before you read. Uh, The psalmist prays, teach me your word and I will run to do it, O Lord. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn out prayer. For me, I typically pray just a very simple prayer. Help my mind to be focused. Holy Spirit, speak. Let me understand what you're saying to me in this time. But pray just to focus your heart and mind on God before you get into the Word. All of this to say God's Word is meant to do more than fill our heads with knowledge. It is meant to impact our lives. It is meant to to change who we are and how we are in every aspect of our lives. God tells Ezekiel to let it sink down into his heart. Right? Remember that in the Bible, the heart isn't the seat of the emotions. The heart is the seat of the will. That's why it says, guard your heart, for out of it come the issues of life. That's why Jesus says what's in your heart comes out in your life. The words you speak are the overflow of what your heart. So when we let the words sink down into our heart, what what does it impact? It impacts my words. It impacts my actions. It impacts my reactions. There's there's no area of my life that's not influenced when the Word sinks down into my heart. So we the Bible is meant to, to impact every area of our lives. All believers uh, are in Jesus are to serve Jesus. And we, we must prepare by spending time in the Word to ensure that it's impacting our lives. Thirdly, share Jesus whether people listen or not. Verse 11, and go get to the captives, the children of your people and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. But after God's word had sunk deep into Ezekiel's heart, he was to go to the people and tell them what God had said. And he was to go tell them, thus says the Lord. And if they listened, that would be wonderful. But if they didn't, he was still to go and say, thus says the Lord. As we go out and we try to serve Christ and we try to help people come to know Jesus and we talk to people about the Bible, about salvation, about eternity, about everything the Bible talks about. We cannot force anyone to change. We cannot force them to to accept it, to embrace it, to believe it. But we still have to go and tell. I mean, that that is ultimately our responsibility. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that that one of us plants and somebody else waters, but it's God that gives the increase. Right? Our job isn't to change hearts and change lives. Our job is simply to sow seeds. Our job is to go and just tell uh, as best we can. And as we go and tell, what we understand is that there is hard work and there's hallelujah work. It's what a Pastor Rob Morgan called it. He got it from this passage. Jesus says... But do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored and now you have entered into their labors. Right now the picture of the fields being white to harvest There's people being all around that need to hear Jesus. Of course, in the context of that passage, Jesus has met the woman at the well. He has told her about her sin and about that He is the Messiah. She has believed. She ran to town to tell the people 
The disciples came as she was leaving. And what we see, what we understand is, as he's telling them the fields are wide unto harvest, there is a village of people walking out to them. So the disciples, now there is just, well, however many is in a village, and twelve disciples. But the point is, there are always, there are always more people that need to be told about Jesus than there are people willing to tell others about Jesus. It's always been that way. That hasn't changed from the day Jesus said this until now. And as we determine to tell people about Jesus, he says that one sows and another reaps. Right? Some people sow the gospel. They share the gospel. They plant the seed. They water the seed. But they never get to see the fruit of that seed. They never get to see that person believe and come to know Jesus Christ. That's, that's the hard work. And that is, that's a, that's a hard work that we all have to do. There are always going to be people that we share the gospel with, that we talk to about Jesus, that don't embrace Him. All we've done is planted a seed or watered a seed, but that's all we can do. I mean, that's literally all that we can do. And so that's hard work. Labor without the fruit, getting to see the fruit. There are also times where we come to people and we begin to talk to them and they're ready. And they receive Christ. right? And in that point, what's happened is, We are reaping what someone else has sown. Other people have sown the gospel into their lives. Other people have watered it. And we came along at just the right point. And we got to to reap where others have worked. That's the hallelujah work. Now, I'll be honest. I haven't got to do nearly as much hallelujah work as hard work throughout my time, my ministry. But there have been times where sometimes I've shared the gospel with people and they've been saved. Sometimes I've shared it multiple times and they've been saved. My very favorite though, me and my pastor at Fort Gibson, we, it was just after we came up here, I was going to my very first state meeting and I was staying with mom and dad because it was in McAllister and I went with Tommy to make a hospital visit. And as we were walking out, a lady backed up her car and said, are you two guys preachers? And we said, yeah. And she says, I want to know how to be saved right now. So right there in the middle of the parking lot, we led her to the Lord. Now, I've never got to do hallelujah work like that ever again. Where somebody just walk up and said, teach me how to be saved. But it happens. right? And if we want to serve Jesus, that's kind of what we have to do. We have to do the hard work. And then we do get to do the hallelujah work as well. We have to be willing to do both. And to me, that's a, a key because I think we would all, if you knew tonight, that the very next 22 people you talked to about Jesus would all embrace Christ and be saved without fail. Just the very first time they would be saved. Every one of us would go out tonight and begin talking to people. If we knew they were going to be saved tonight when we talked to them. But we don't have that guarantee. We have to do the hard work. And then we get to do the hallelujah work. We have to be willing to do both. We have to tell people about Jesus whether they receive it or reject it. We have to tell people about Jesus whether they like it, hate it, or indifferent to it. We have to tell people about Jesus whether they listen or whether they don't. And this is, this is a hard thing. That do it no matter what. Martin Luther, Martin Luther at the Reformation, he said, I preach and then I drink my beer. Now, I struggle with that, and not just because I'm a teetotaling free will Baptist. But what he meant was, after he preached, his obligation was through. I mean, that's all he, he, he showed the gospel. 
He preached the Bible. He told them about Jesus. He called on them to repent and believe. And then he went on about it. There was nothing else he could do. It was between them and God at that point. His obligation was finished. Uh, I love, I love that mindset. I wish, I wish I could embrace that mindset. But I, I, I can't. For me, that is extremely difficult to do. And I'm sure it is for all of us. Because typically, those that we're sharing the gospel with are people we care about. Few of us are out on the street handing out tracts to people we don't know or standing on soap boxes on the street corner hollering or knocking doors at random people. If we're talking to someone about Jesus, chances are we're emotionally invested in them already. And it's really hard to preach and then just go and, well, I've done my part, I feel good about it now, no matter what. But that's kind of what we have to do. Life change, that's God's work. It's not ours. Our job is to sow the gospel. Our job is to water the seed that was sown. Hallelujah, there are times where we get to do that great work of leading people. But it's not our job to make it get to that point. All of that is God's work in them and through them as we tell them about who Jesus is and what He has done. All we do is plant, water, and pray and wait. It's hard to accept. That's the way it is. We must share Jesus whether people listen or not. And then finally, go in God's strength. I'm determined to serve Jesus no matter what. Make sure Scripture is impacting me personally. Share Jesus whether people listen or not. And then go in God's strength. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness... And in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. And I came to the captives at Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Chaber. And I sat there, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. And, and I like what we see here. Just the honesty of Ezekiel is what we see on more than anything. Ezekiel leaves to go do what God has called him to do. But he goes in bitterness... And the, the heat of his spirit. And then for seven days when he gets back, he sits there astonished. What does it mean that he went in the heat of his spirit, that he sat astonished? Heat seems to carry with it the idea of being angry. And sitting down astonished seems to imply that he was discouraged. One of my commentaries said Ezekiel was not enthusiastic about answering God's call. The prospect of overwhelming opposition doubtlessly weighed so heavily upon him that he felt totally inadequate. Discouragement, distress, anguish, and turmoil gripped his heart. His soul was in so much turmoil that he became bitter about being called to such a difficult ministry. How could he possibly spend the rest of his life facing such opposition? Why would the Lord call him? To emphasize the sins of people and the coming judgment when God already knew they were not going to repent. I love that. Because I feel at times like Ezekiel feels here. Bitterness, heat in my spirit, astonished. 
people can hear the gospel and just ignore it so many times. Have you ever felt that way as you try to talk to people and you try to serve Jesus? I mean, the task that that the church of Jesus Christ is called to, to make disciples of all nations, it's overwhelming. Even the task that our church is called to, to make disciples of Gaiman, I mean, that is an overwhelming thing to do when so many here are either lukewarm or they are spiritually dull, or they have no concern whatsoever. I mean, you can talk to people about heaven and hell, and they just will not care. They don't get mad, and they don't get convicted. They just don't care. Apathy, complacency. Carelessness about eternity. These things characterize the vast majority of our community. And it can be overwhelming to try to reach our community for Jesus Christ. Like Ezekiel, there will be times where we feel inadequate. Where we become discouraged, possibly even angry and bitter over these things. But Ezekiel did it. He worked through it and then he kept on and he was faithful. Why? Why didn't he just quit? Sit down and shut up or just go somewhere else? I think the answer is in the last of verse 14. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. He didn't quit because God had a hold on him. Without God's hand on him, he probably would have given up and quit. Without God's hand upon us, we would likely give up and quit as well. Without God's strength enabling us, we would give up. We have to remember and remind ourselves constantly that God's work must be done in God's strength. Human strength alone is never enough to accomplish God's will. But a human empowered by God can do whatever God wants done. Quickly, turn with me to Zechariah. Chapter 4. Verse 6. Now a man named Zerubbabel was given a, a mighty task from God to rebuild the temple. And the people there were spiritually complacent. And they were apathetic. And they were unconcerned. And Zerubbabel is overwhelmed at the task... That God has given him. And look at verse 6. So he answered and said to him. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by my nor my power. But by my strength. Says the Lord of hosts. Who are you O great mountain. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone. With shouts of grace. Grace to it. The point there. Is that God's telling Zerubbabel. No you, you can't do it. Man, you're on your own. You can't make it happen. But it's not meant to be on your own. I'm going to help you. I'm going to empower you so much that mountains that oppose you are going to be like planes. You're going to be able to do it. The capstone was like the final touch. You've started it and you're going to finish it. Now my favorite part of this is verse 10. Verse 9 and 10. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation in this temple, and his hand shall also finish it. 
Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, from what I understand at this point, the foundation's all that's been laid. They've had time to do more, but the people aren't really working. There's not many. And Zerubbabel is discouraged because of how little has been accomplished in his time of doing what God has told him to do. But look at verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. What God says to him is, don't be discouraged because a little bit, only a little bit's been done. God rejoices to see that you're doing it. And God looks at the fact that you've got the work started and you're being faithful and the Lord rejoices in what you consider a small thing. It's easy to get discouraged at what, how little we think we're accomplishing, how little we think we're, we're getting done. But what God sees isn't how little we're getting done. What God sees is that we're trying. We're being faithful. We are, tr- we are doing our best to do His will. And in that, the Lord rejoices. And isn't it great to know that God rejoices at our efforts to do His will. He sees, He cares, He knows, and He is pleased and rejoicing in heaven every time we take up the plumb line and we set out to do the will and the work of God. I want to close by reading part of a poem written by English missionary to China, India, and Africa, C.T. Stead. He said, Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Let's take time tonight and take prayer requests before we dismiss.